This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, hello, everyone. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us for Villanova's 18th Annual Philosophy Conference, um, Apocalyptic Politics. As our conference comes to a close, I especially want to thank John Carvalho for his support of our graduate community and Dr. James Wetzel, um, who has co-sponsored this event. I also want to thank all the graduate students for putting this conference together and our participants and moderators for providing us with such rich conversation this weekend. Well, I'm very pleased to introduce our next speaker, Dr. John D. Caputo, who will be concluding this weekend's event. Dr. Caputo received his master's from Villanova in 1964, and two years later completed his PhD at Bryn Mawr College. He returned to Villanova to teach for 36 years and was appointed the David R. Cook Professor of, Vil of Philosophy at Villanova in 1993. He was also appointed the Thomas J. Watson Professor of Religion at Syracuse University, where he taught philosophy and religion for seven years before his retirement. As Professor Emeritus at Villanova and Syracuse, Dr. Caputo remains actively involved with his students in both communities. I'd like to personally thank him for his help with this conference if you've ever attended the um, Religion and Postmodern Conferences, you know that he puts on uh, really great conferences, so we were really happy to have his help for this one. Um, and more importantly, Dr. Caputo played a major role in establishing our PhD program during his time at Villanova. So after 20 years, our community remains grateful to Dr. Caputo for making our doctoral program possible. Dr. Caputo specializes in phenomenology, hermeneutics, deconstruction, and theology. He's well known for his development of radical hermeneutics and weak theology. His distinct approach to religion is influenced by Jacques Derrida's philosophy of deconstruction, an appropriation which in turn had a deep influence on Derrida's focus on religion in his later works. Dr. Caputo's work in continental philosophy of religion has initiated new conversations between philosophers and theologians, and has also had a vibrant life outside of the university, influencing the practice of many religious communities. Some of his works include Radical Hermeneutics, The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida, Religion Without Religion, On Religion, The Weakness of God, A Theology of the Event, What Would Jesus Deconstruct, and After the Death of God, with Gianni Badumel. He has a forthcoming book called Truth, which will be published by Penguin this summer. Um, and tonight, Dr. Caputo will be presenting a paper entitled Apocalyptic Nihilism, a version of which will appear in his forthcoming book, also to be published this summer by Indiana, called The Insistence of God. So please join me in welcoming Dr. John Caputo. Thank you very much, Rachel. I, I uh, is delightful to be back home. This is my home. Um, I do apologize for having made myself scarce this weekend. I, I got myself into a, a jam that I didn't see coming, which is that our son from Colorado and uh, his family and our grandkids uh, are in uh, for the weekend. I didn't see the conflict and weekends coming until uh, just a couple weeks ago. And so I've had to divide. I, I told my wife last night that I was going to miss the big family dinner because I wanted to hear Cats of Malibu. And she informed me that I was not going to miss the big dinner. <laughs> and since I only have 49% of the corporation back home, uh, I, uh, I've had to miss a lot. 
So I, I do make my do. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank, thanks to Rachel for uh, inviting me back. And we, we had uh, we thought we had Zizek all lined up, but then that uh, fell through. So, uh, but we still had uh, still put together quite quite a nice conference. And uh, it's uh, you're, you're, I know what it's like to do it. It's a pain in the neck running these things. And uh, she's the, the the whole team has done a terrific job. And it's great to see the program flourishing. It's just Where's water? It's just just about 20 years now since we we um, raised raised our glass uh, to the approval of the PhD program, and um, after a, a long fight, one one of our arguments with the board of trustees being that there were going to be plenty of jobs out there by around the year 2000. <laughs> Talk about apocalypse! There's there's an apocalyptic topic: the job market. Um, okay, there. Uh, I was glad to see, to see in the last, at the end of the last session, that somebody got the dictionary out and looked up the word apocalypse. Um, an apocalypse is not supposed to be simply a destruction. It's a it's a creative destruction, right? It's the it's the unveiling of a new world which dismantles the old one. So it's and it's of course famously the last book in the in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which announces the coming of um, the kingdom of God and the breakup of the, the kingdom of the world. And it's in that book, by the way, which has gotten a sort of black eye from the crazy right-wing interpretation of it out there right now, is a critique of the Roman Empire. And um, it announces the coming of the rule of justice, um, of the messianic age of peace and justice when, when the Roman Empire is, which is the devil, the horror Satan uh, is the Roman Empire and it announces the coming of the kingdom of God. So it's not quite as crazy. It's violent, but it's not quite as crazy as it sounds. But, a, but a, an apocalypse is a revelation. Just use the word revelation instead of apocalypse. But the word apocalypse has a completely negative sense. It's acquired, it's been contracted into the negative sense. Uh, it's where, which sense in which everybody's been using it here. And it's also the sense in which I'm going to start out using it here, although I'm going to come around to its creative revelatory sense too, which is what's more interesting. Um, so let me read, uh, here's an apocalypse, particularly in its, its destructive sense. Um, from, uh, I'm going to quote now from a wonderful book by uh, Jean-François Lyotard called The Inhuman. Um, and he says the following. He says, while we talk, the sun is getting older. This is a slightly long quote, but it's, it's worth it. While we talk, the sun is getting older. It will explode in 4.5 billion years. It's just a little beyond the halfway point of its expected lifetime. With the sun's death, you're insoluble questions. And he's talking to the philosophers, you philosophers, who keep answer, asking these unanswerable questions. That's the difference between philosophy and theology. Philosophy is unanswerable questions. Theology is unquestionable answers. So he's talking to the philosophers. You philosophers with your endless questions. With the sun's death, your insoluble questions will be done too. It's possible they'll stay unanswered right up to the end. You explain, it's impossible to think an end, pure and simple. And this is sort of a Hegelian comment. 
it's impossible to think an end, pure and simple, of anything at all, since the end's a limit, and to think it, you have to be on both sides of that limit, so what's finished or finite has to be perpetuated in our thought if it's to be thought of as finished. Now, this is true of the limits belonging to thought, but after the son's death, there won't be a thought to know that its death took place. In 4.5 billion years, there will arrive the demise of your phenomenology and your utopian politics, and there'll be no one there to toll the death knell or hear it. It will be too late to understand that your passionate, endless questioning always depended on a life of the mind that will have been nothing else than a covert form of earthly life. With the disappearance of the earth, thought will have stopped, leaving that disappearance absolutely unthought of. It's the horizon itself that will be abolished. But the death of the sun is the death of the mind, because it is the death of death as the life of the mind, something belonging to life. Because it is, there's no sublation or deferral if nothing survives. This annihilation is totally different from the one you harangue us about, talking about our death or being unto death, a death that is part of the fate of the living creatures who still think. The solar explosion won't be due to human war, it won't leave behind a devastated human world, dehumanized but with nonetheless at least a single survivor, someone left to tell the story of what's left to write it down. Dehumanized still implies human, a dead human, but conceivable, because dead in human terms, still capable of being sublated in thought. But in what remains after the solar explosion, there won't be any humanness, there won't be any living creatures, there won't be intelligent, sensitive, sentient earthlings to bear witness to it, since they and their earthly horizon will have been consumed. Of that death alone, Epicurus ought to have said what he says about our death now, that I have nothing to do with it, since if it's present, I'm not, and if I'm not present, it's not. Human death is included in the life of the human mind. Solar death implies an irreparably exclusive disjunction between death and thought. If there's death, then there's no thought. Negation without remainder, no self to make sense of it, pure event, disaster. All the events and all the disasters we're familiar with and try to think up, think of, will end up as no more than pear, pale simulacra. Now this event is ineluctable, so either you don't concern yourself with it and remain in the life of the mind and in earthly phenomenality. Like Epicurus, you say, as long as it's not here, I am. And I continue philosophizing in the cozy lap of the complicity between man and nature, but still with this glum afterthought, après moi le déluge, which was cited in the last paper, only this time, not simply après moi, but après uh, tout le monde, après nous, après everybody. Um, all that will remains, all that remains is the Cora of the Timaeus, not nature. 
matter, not nature, but, but matter. Matter asks no questions, expects no answers. It ignores us. It made us the way it made all bodies, by chance and according to its laws. And then he refers to human organisms as technologies for processing information and surviving. Material systems that um, survive in, in material elements by processing information and uh, adapting to uh, and dominating its, their envir its environment. So it's not that we made technology, but technology made, made us. We are survival machines, information processing machines. And he said this 25 years ago, so this is 1988. This is a relatively uh, in, insightful uh, impression. And he wraps it up like this after a discussion of technology. So the problem of the technological sciences can be stated as, as follows. How to provide the software with a hardware that is independent of the conditions of life on Earth. That is, thinking of our bodies as hardware and of our intelligence as software. The problem is how to provide this software, our intelligence, with a hardware that is independent of the conditions of life on Earth. That is, how to make thought without a body possible. A thought that continues to exist after the death of the human, after the death of the human body. This is the price to be paid if the explosion is to be conceivable, if we're able to conceive, think, bring within the realm of thought the solar apocalypse. Thought without a body is the prerequisite for thinking of the death of all bodies, solar or terrestrial, and the death of thoughts that are inseparable from those bodies. And the title of the essay is, Can, a, Can Thought Go On Without a Body? And he's referring, of course, not to um, the classical theological uh, question of resurrection, but of um, artificial intelligence and the possibility of uh, uploading consciousness and then downloading it into shiny new um, robot bodies that, by means of which we can escape a doomed planet, a planet with an apocalypse uh, awaiting it. All right, um, it's a great book. It's a book called The Inhuman, and it's a, and it's a lead essay in this book. Now, what I want to talk about, uh, actually I could just leave it at that, because it's such a great code, I can't, it'd be hard to follow, hard to beat it. Um, what I want to talk about is a kind of, uh, the implications of, of thinking like that, the implications of a text like that, um, for philosophy, to begin with, and so a kind of apocalyptic situation that affect, affects philosophy itself. Secondly, um, this apocalypse that he's talking about and the significance of it. Because he says that's, this is really the fundamental question. All these other questions are sort of provisional and temporary and passing. Um, well, is that true? So the second thing I want to talk about is whether, is to address this, 
this cosmic apocalypse that he's talking about, um, that, that Leotard is talking about. And then finally, to come back in the third point to what uh, is the pressing issue for philosophy today, the crisis, the present, the, the moment. Now, the first point, the apocalyptic situation in which philosophy finds itself today, by that I mean um, the crisis that uh, continental philosophy and philosophy generally is in today, right now, uh, under the critique that uh, it's suffering from what's called the speculative realism uh, movement, or the new realism, or the new materialism, of which, in part, Zizek is, um, Zizek is related to it. He's not sort of central to it, but he's part of it. And Malibu is, is relevant to it, too. I think they're both uh, significant figures for something new that's happening to continental philosophy right now, something we didn't see 20 years ago uh, when we were thinking about this program, and um, something which emerged right around, it was beginning to emerge right around the time Jacques Derrida died. Um, so at the, with the death of the Soissons-Huitaire, you know, the 68ers, um, it's like that was the occasion for uh, a, a, a kind of apocalyptic visitation upon uh, Carnot philosophy declaring it dead. Um, and the theological turn in Carnot philosophy was taken to be the, the death rattle. That was the, it's clear the Carnot philosophy was in its death rows because it had taken a theological turn. That was the almost inevitable, predictable upshot, the critic, these critics say, of a position that is viciously subjectivized, which is Carnot philosophy, a viciously subjectivistic position. Um, and that it wasn't, it, it was not simply picking on kind of philosophy uh, in, in particular, because it also included analytic philosophy within its critique. That is, it's just as critical of Wittgensteinian language games as it is of uh, Heidegger's notion of uh, the Welt of the world, the, life, the phenomenological notion of the life world. It considers, it, it considers actually European philosophy generally to be a, a vicious kind of subjectivism which has um, uh, turned its uh, face away from reality, from the real, not the psychoanalytic real, but the real, the really real, the, the real that's going to be there when we're not here, and it was here before we were here, when Lacan's real will be uh, as dead as everything else. Um, and uh, a, a, a subjectivism which it attributes attributes to the sort of fatal influence of Kant on continental philosophy. So you can find a text almost exactly like the one from Leotard that I just read in a book by uh, Ray Brassier entitled Nihil Unbound. Um, unbound nothingness, you know, where bound has, uh, also has a psychoanalytic sense, bound and unbound. So a completely uh, un unleashed nihilism, not, not uh, harnessed by consciousness or, uh, uh, or, or thought or um, um, the taming categories of uh, philosophy. Now, my, so in part I'm responding to that. My response to it is, is, is uh, twofold. On the one hand, I think that there's something to it. 
I think this critique uh, of Kant philosophy is half right. And, uh, I, but, but, I, but I consider the, the half right, the, 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 the kind of kind of philosophy that's rightly charged with this, with this kind of objection to be um, the, the, the kind of kind of philosophy that descends from Kant. And where there is indeed a traditional transcendental subjectivism and um, a re reactionary attitude towards the physical sciences. But it doesn't, it seems to me, apply to the kind of kind of philosophy that descends from Hegel, um, where there is a more robust, uh, where, where I'm going to say there's a more robust sense of, of reality. Um, and um, the Kant that I'm thinking about is the Kant who says, I have found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. And that's inspired a version of Kant philosophy which uses philosophy to delimit the role of the natural sciences. And it, it, it accepts in one version or another, in one form or another, uh, the notion that science has to do with appearance, with phenomenality, with some kind of mathematicized reality, not reality. Um, and it's also, in, in the work I've been doing in the last 10 or 15 years, it shows up in a particular version of the philosophy of religion in which Kahneman philosophy is basically used to form the basis of an apologetics, in which the postmodern post thinking or post-structuralist post thinking is used to delimit the pretensions of materialist metaphysics. So it's a way of holding off materialism in order to keep faith safe. Whereas the Hegelian a Hegelian approach to the philosophy of religion, if you take the philosophy of religion as symptomatic of a larger trend in kind of philosophy, the Hegelian version to the, to the philosophy of religion is not like that at all. It doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't use uh, a critique of science to, uh, 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 to, to, to keep the sphere of faith safe. It delves into the very heart of religion and demythologizes it. Um, and so cognitive philosophy of religion of the Hegelian strike is, is much more radical than, than the Kantian version. So that's part of where this is, where this is coming from. Uh, and then the question arises with Hegel himself about whether or not, and this is the, the thing that's going on in the Malibu's book, whether or not in Hegel there's a, a genuine notion of contingency and of uh, an open-ended future or of what Derrida calls the event is there anything like that? Or, and therefore, is there a real death of God? Um, or is the death of God uh, ultimately part of the long-term life of God? Which is the question that Derrida asks her in the beginning of, uh, or the, in, 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 the, in the preface to the book. Whether, this, whether there isn't a deeper alliance of Hegel with uh, theology and consequently the impossibility of uh, the death of God, where, where the death, of, in a radical sense, where the death of God is simply a moment in the life of um, God's unfolding, God's dialectical unfolding. Now, Zizek, uh, Malibu, uh, and Mladen Dora yesterday were arguing for this more radical Hegel, where the negativity goes all the way down, and it's not, negativity is not simply a moment in the ultimate life of God, the, the, the plenitude and uh, life of God, it's, it goes all the way down. There really is a, 
a split. The absolute is the broken absolute. The, the, the dialectic is the double, uh, double negation. It's not the double negation that results in an affirmation. It's just a double negation. It's a radical cut in the absolute itself. And that's sort of Derrida's question to her. She said, isn't, isn't there really, uh, there can't really be an event in, in, um, in Hegel because uh, that would mean contingency, that would mean exposure to death, real death, radical death, not death as part of, a, of an economy. Okay. So, so I think that the Kantian versions of Kantian philosophy are subject to the criticism that, that, that the new realism or, or speculative realism is visiting on us. But I don't think that the Hegelian versions are, at least if the Hegelian version is radical, of the sort that you get in, in Malibu Zizek and, and we heard yesterday from uh, Dolar. Uh, the only difference I would have with them is that I think that the exegetically, um, I, I, don't think that, I don't think this more radical Hegel is the, is the exegetically dominant motif in Hegel. I think, it's a, I think it's a minor chord in Hegel that you have to sort of get by a deconstructive reading. I, don't, I think clearly that Hegel Hegel was in alliance with the, with the old theology in terms of the infinite and exhaustible being, wisdom, and truth of God, and, and consequently of being, and, and he really did have a notion of telos and totality. But I think that there, are, there is a minor chord in there that you can sort of pull the string of. All right. So that, that's sort of the, the, the general schema. Now let's, let's take a look at some of the particulars, and I'll uh, see if I can get through this uh, in an expeditious way. Um, I think that the occasion for the current uh, crisis in continental philosophy, and it's in crisis, I mean, I really do think it's in crisis. I think that vast, vast numbers of young, uh, younger um, PhDs and graduate students are very uh, vigorously, energetically embracing um, this critique of what continental philosophy is doing. The last conference I ran at Syracuse was called The Future of Continental Philosophy of Religion, and we were flooded with papers from continent, from, from, uh, from speculative realism, speculative realist people who are really uh, the, announcing the death of continental philosophy as we know it. Uh, and I'm just saying, well, that as we know it is uh, the, the conscious version. Now, I think that. The, uh, here, here's what I think. I th I've been criticizing metaphysics for as long as, since I left my, my, the womb of Thomism about 40 years ago, um, I've been criticizing the possibility of metaphysics in the name of some kind of phenomeno phenomenological approach to philosophy. And was, philosophy is phenomenology. It, it is, for me, it's not Husserlian phenomenology, but a much more radical phenomenology that's been sort of passed through the crucible of post-structuralist critiques of of the naivete of original phenomenology. But I think it's some version of phenomenology. So what do I think, what do I think metaphysics is? Well, the speculative realists make me realize that what I think metaphysics is, is physics. Put it this way. Metaphysics is supposed to deal with reality. And that's, that's the thing, not the Lacanian real, but reality, physical reality. And so what is that? Well, one way to think about what that is is it's what's there when we're not. It's what would, what would be there when we're not. So 
the, the way that Maitasu approaches that is, is to talk about uh, the archival. So the way the world was before we came into the world. Well, Leotar is doing it from the under, other end, the way the world will be when we're not there, after the death of thought. The, the way the world is before thought, the way the world is after thought. Uh, as long as there's thought, thought seems somehow or another to subjectivize reality. So what's, what do you mean by metaphysics? You mean the way the world would be if we weren't there to think about it. Right? Now, in one sense, that's a contradiction in terms. But in another sense, it's not, because we can certainly talk about the way the world was before we came, this species evolved, and the way the world would be after this species is either destroys itself, as the previous panels were, were, were which is the anxiety in the previous panels, or if it doesn't, long before the, the solar explosion 4.5 billion years from now, the Earth will have long become, long, long before that, become toast. Because as the sun expands, the, 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 the Earth will just simply be incinerated in, in I don't know, 500,000 years or a billion years, but whatever, whatever the latest calculations are. So what's, the world, what's reality as it is in itself? Well, it's, it's reality under the terms that we could imagine being there in, without us. And what's that? Well, the only language we've got available to discuss that is uh, mathematics. It's the only way we can talk about that. I mean, I mean, you can speculate any way you want, but the only way you can actually talk about it in, in some kind of uh, decidable way is mathematics. So it's the way, it's the, way the world was, the, uh, it's the way the world is described in astrophysics. It's the way the world is described in quantum physics. Um, it's, it's the world um, beyond fusis, where fusis means life. It's the material world, which is, discover, which is expressible in, in the language of uh, mathematical formula that are probably not even intuitable. The contrary Husserl's phenomenology, these are formula that are probably, probably can't even be intuitive. So if a physicist says that the physical universe is composed of vibrating filaments called superstrings, I very much doubt that traditional metaphysicians, unequipped with either mathematics or experimental evidence, have anything to add. The cosmic schema to which contemporary physics at present subscribes is not far from the youthful Nietzsche's fable about a distant corner of the universe in which little animals invented proud little words like truth, and then after a while the universe took another breath, was forced to move on, and the proud little animals and their proud little words, like truth, died. Physics, I don't say physics is metaphysics, which is what Badiou says, and I think that's too strong, because I don't think he, can, he can't back that up. He simply, at a certain point, says, well, I stipulate that. Mathematics is ontology. What's the proof for that? Well, how the hell would you ever prove a thing like that? You can't prove that. You, you, because the only re language you have recourse to establish it uh, with is mathematics. So you can't prove it. So he says, well, it's the way a modern man would think, a modern person would think. I stipulate it. So it's a, that's a circular argument. You can't, can't actually prove it. You can't actually, I don't think you can actually get to metaphysics in the classical sense at all, because you can never get, you'd never get that far. The more mathematical physicists discover, the more they discover they don't know. 
I mean, if, if we don't blow ourselves off the face of the earth, what will the earth look like? What, what will life look like? What will our self-understanding be like in a hundred years? In a thousand years? In ten? In ten? In ten thousand years? What will we like? Our iPhones will be so primitive, they'll be funny. Right? What will, what will, what will the understanding of the human body, if we even have bodies, biological, biodegradable bodies at that point? So the vastness of what we don't know expands as, as, as rapidly as the universe itself. So I don't think anybody ever will ever get metaphysics in the classical sense. But physics is about as much metaphysics as we're going to get. Um, and I think furthermore that you know, the physicists get, the, uh, get all the TV shows, they get all the headlines, they get NOVA, they get the, the, they're on the History Channel, not the philosophers. What, what the physicists say is so amazing, is so breathtaking, it's so astonishing. It fulfills the classical notion of philosophy as wonder. And they start talking about multiple dimensions, alternate universes. The Big Bang is simply one possibility of, of, of um, universes that are continually spinning off new universes with new Big Bangs that just keep on going on and on and on and on. Uh, endless universes, so that the universe we're in right now, which started with the Big Bang and is going to end up in entropic dissipation, is this one universe of an infinite number of universes. And because it's an infinite number of universes, then every possibility will be actualized. Because it's infinite. There's no ending to it. Every possible universe will be actualized. So Kierkegaard's either or will just be one possible universe. Right? Now, Philosophers are capable of saying things that are as crazy as that, but we don't have any mathematics to back it up. But what's interesting about the, the extraordinary uh, uh, audacity of speculative cosmology right now is that it's the mathematics that's leading them to it. They're not gassing. It's not a beer over uh, in, in a hotel conference bar. It's the mathematics that's leading them to say things as extraordinary as that. Or maybe it's the mathematics and the beer, which is more more cool. Now, all that being said, and that's what I think is, I think that, you, know, you can see why I think that there's something to speculative realism. All that being said, I do think speculative realism contains some, some serious misunderstandings of what's going on in in philosophy generally, and certainly in continental philosophy. And it, 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 it boils down to two criticisms. A criticism that continental philosophy is essentially correlationist, by which they mean subjectivist, and fideist, by which they mean given to um, settle things on matters, given to end up eventually in religion, in religious faith. Now, I think that any serious 
analysis of what chusserol and what phenomenologists mean by correlation will show that Malasu, I think, there's a long footnote in this new coming, uh, forthcoming book of mine called The Insistence of God, long three-page footnote in which I take every single thing that Mylasu says about correlation in After Finitude, and I show that it is either wrong or it's misleadingly put. It's, it's tendentious. Correlation is nothing more than the notion that if something happens on the objective side of things, something corresponding to that must be happening on the subject side, otherwise the, the one on the subject side isn't going to know anything about what's going on on the objective side. The world is not diminished because it's known. They take Aristotle's notion that the soul is in a way all things and read it backwards as if, he's, as if Aristotle were saying the world is the soul, that the world is what becomes uh, a part of the soul, whereas in fact Aristotle is saying the soul opens up onto the, onto the world. So a being that knows something is a being that has uh, ex infinitely expanded its, its horizons beyond the limits of its own, uh, its, its own finite skin. Uh, is a, a very, I mean, it's an old argument. It's an argument that, that, that Walter and I came into philosophy on. It's the argument that uh, Wilfred Sellers and the scientific realists in Pittsburgh were making against phenomenology. And we used to have uh, meetings of SPEP in which we would refute scientific realism because it wasn't leaving any room for the conscious acts in which scientific reality was cognized. The fact that we cognize scientific reality is not, does not come at the cost of scientific reality. It explains how it's not magic. If you didn't have some theory of correlation, you would have uh, magic. Knowledge would simply be magic. It would just simply happen somehow or another, but there would be no subjective agency involved in it. And so, <laughs> it would just be, it would drop out of the sky. So you need some kind of notion of correlation to make sense out of reality, but you need one that is, avoids, uh, avoids saying things that are misleading. And Husserl says lots of very mi misleading things. Husserl, Husserl himself really sounds like some kind of correlationist in the sense that they're, they're criticizing, but I don't, I don't think that the best work in phenomenology now supports that. I think that the work that Don Zahavi has done with Husserl shows that that's certainly not the case. Um, it's interesting, there's a young man named Graham Harmon who took a PhD from uh, uh, DePaul, but he uh, went to Penn State and he studied with uh, Al, uh, Al Lingus at Penn State, and so he studied Levinas. And um, he, he sort of, he, he, wrote, he, he published a book, which is a book of all the papers that he wrote that were turned down by SPEP and and the Heidegger circle. Honestly, it's, it's, it's like eight papers, all of which are rejected, and he wears those rejections as a badge of honor because he's saying, this is the old, these old guys that are stuck in the mud in old continental philosophical, phenomenological subjectivism rejected me, and they rejected the new realism. And but he, the interesting thing about Harmon is that he makes occasional reference to Levinas. And he says, and he says well, I, I can understand that because he worked with Alingus, but, but he's interested in Le Levinas. Why? Because Levinas 
Virtually everybody after Husserl in the phenomenological movement put their distance between themselves and Husserl precisely on this point of some kind of subjectivistic, idealistic, transcendental uh, phenomenology. And they all looked for Heidegger turned to the world, Merleau-Baltit to the body, and Levinas turned to uh, the other person. So Levinas wanted to say, the other person is as real as real can be. One of the things that, one of the ways around this is to see that whenever continental philosophers say other, or tout autre, they mean reality. They, they mean the thing that I didn't project, that I didn't come up with, the thing that visits itself upon me. Right? Now in Levinas's case, that was the other person. And so Levinas said, the other person is this sort of infinite depth that I'll never get to. I'll never be able to, to um, I, I won't know what the other's thinking. The other's always capable of saying something to me that I didn't see coming. You can be married to someone for 40 years and they can still surprise you. Why? Because that's, a, it's a, that's what Levinas calls infinity. There's this sort of infinite depth there. So he says, Levinas says, the relationship between two people is the relationship between two absolutes, that is to say, each one of them is a seat of uh, personal life, that are in relationship to each other. So the absolutes are in relationship to each other, okay? which can't be literally, right? That's not possible. Absolutes in relationship to each other in which the two terms are continually withdrawing themselves from the relationship into which they've entered. Right? It's a magnificent description of, of a genuine theory of correlation, where the one pole is an ecstatic openness onto the other pole, the other pole is an exposure to the first, neither pole is reducible to its polar opposite, but they're in relationship to each other. Now that's exactly what what correlation is supposed to mean. It's not reductionistic. Right? And there are people who are looked favorably upon in the speculative realist movement who do a really good job of explaining the physical sciences in this way, the, the work of scientists. And I think, uh, the, the, I'm thinking in particular of this man, Bruno Latour. Bruno Latour corresponds to uh, Don Eide in the phenomenological movement. That is to say, people who have uh, uh, realist, realist tendencies, who treat phenomenology not as a, a form of subjective idealism, but as a form of um, engagement with reality. Genuine theory of correlation says knowledge sinks its teeth into reality. But in order to sink your teeth into reality, you have to have teeth. There has to be something on the subjective side. There has to be subjective acts. Bruno Latour does a terrific job of explaining um, a genuine theory of, uh, of scientific knowledge, which takes into account what we would call the phenomenological side. Now, where does, where does Bruno Latour come from? Oh, he's influenced by Michel Serre. Where does Michel Serre come from? Michel Serre is a reader of Canguillen. There's a whole there is a tradition of continental philosophy of science, but it's a minor tradition. It's a minor chord. It never got a hearing at SPEP. They didn't be Michel Serre didn't become one of the stars. He didn't become Lyotard or Derrida or Foucault. But he's a major philosopher. He's a major French philosopher 
who is talking about the physical sciences, talking about technology, and he deeply influenced what is probably the most important French philosopher around these days, Bruno Latour, at least in terms of dealing with science. So the speculative realists are, are right about us, but they're only half right. There is this, there's another side of the philosophy that they didn't pay attention to. Now, what I think this means for us is that we, we need a new conception, not simply of continental philosophy, but a new conception of the humanities. We, you all are going to be professors of the humanities, right? You're going to get a job. We're going to find you a job. Somehow or another, you're going to get a job. The apocalypse won't happen. You'll get a job. And when you get a job, you're going to be in a college or a university as a part of the humanities faculty. Not, not just philosophy, but their literature and religion and history and political theory, representing the humanities. The humanities have been handicapped up to now because they have um, eschewed learning something serious about the inhuman, the non-human, the scientific real. The, the physical reality. That's what I like about uh, Malibu. Malibu is somebody trying to do phenomenology in concert with neuroscience. We just had a speaker here a couple of weeks ago, who was a former Villanova MA, Sean Gallagher, who's doing uh, phenomenology in very, very close cooperation with uh, AI theory. That's the way kind of philosophy needs to go in the future. We can't keep repeating uh, th things like Heidegger saying science doesn't think. That is completely false. Science thinks, it thinks very deeply. It thinks about the very nature and the makeup of space and time and the beginning of the universe and the end of the universe. It thinks. We, we can't resort to those kinds of platitudes. We can't say, like um, uh, uh, Bellarmine, you know, that uh, science um, wants to know uh, how the heavens go, and theology wants to know how to go to heaven. You can't you can't pull that anymore. Science has the, the the relationship, the distance between philosophy and theology. I'm sorry, philosophy and science or between theology and science, is collapsing. They're becoming porous. They're bleeding into each other. The, the, the differences are becoming more and more um, porous. So what do the humanities do? And what do philosophers do? Well, I think in saying all the things that I've just said about the physical sciences, I wasn't, I am not, I have not left Villanova to go to Syracuse to come back to a reductionistic materialist. I'm, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the, the, the hard sciences, the, the physics and biology, give us a kind of um, the range of sciences from physics to biology give us a kind of schema within which we come to understand ourselves. 
that we are material beings. We are, our, our materiality is, is the most fundamental stratum of our, our reality. And human being is a kind of uh, 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 complication and complexification within the material world and within the animal world. The relationships between the human and the inhuman, the human, human animals and non-human animals, living beings and non-living beings, are, are much more intimate and complex than, than, than continental philosophy in particular and humanities in general have uh, allowed. So we, we need a new conception of the humanities in which we, we will not simply be literate about science, but understand the way that science interweaves with what, with what we do, the relationship between the, the physical, scientific, natural scientific explanations of things and, and the humanistic ones. Well, what are the humanistic ones? Well, I think there's an expression, I remember when I was writing this paper, that there's an expression in Husserl where Husserl refers to um, a vocabulary that can describe things that are notched, scalloped, and lens-shaped. You know, it's like when you read uh, wine critics and they start telling you about the oaky taste and, uh, and the, 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 you know, they have this exotic vocabulary for describing what wine tastes like or what coffee tastes like. Um, it's, it's a unique vocabulary for capturing things that are non-formalizable. And I think that what, what we do, what phenomenology does, what, what kind of philosophy does, what philosophy itself does, what the humanities in general do, is capture the non-formalizable qualities and things, the, the, qualita the, the, the lived qualitative uh, experience of things. I think that happens in literature, it happens in... Um, philosophy that happens across the, the, the spectrum of the humanities, which capture the, what is idiosyncratic and unique and distinctive about our lives. But, but, it's, but it's a complexification which occurs within matter properly understood, amply understood, non-reductionistically understood. Um, And so you'd have some kind of open-ended uh, materialism, a materialism which is not reductionistic or uh, deterministic, but um, re recognizes all of the complexity and, and uh, uh, subtlety and non-programmable possibilities within the material world. The other... When did we start? We started, what, when... And after something like that. All right. The other thing that uh, that that, that kind of philosophy is criticized for by these people is something they call fideism, uh, which um, I'm going to skip because I'm running. I'm, 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 I've been talking too much. Um, but suffice it to say that I, I think that fideism is exactly what happens in Kantianism. That is to say, you fend off science in order to make room for faith in uh, either God or uh, the purely human. Um, and, and, I, 
I think that's a sort of half-hearted version of Kahneman philosophy. I think the more radical version of Kahneman philosophy is uh, embraces uh, the reality of the material world without compromise. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be a system, a way of retrenching. I think. I think that's what the Kantian version is. It's retrenchment. It concedes that the physical sciences have, have gone thus far, and then it keeps looking for new turf that physical sciences can't get to because it's irreducibly ours. And, and it's why we need to have a required course in the curriculum. You know, that's why you need a philosophy department, because there's this turf that, that it can't reach. I don't think that's true. I think that there's nothing that the physical sciences can't reach. If the theory of superstrings turns out to be right, and two weeks from now it's liable to be completely out. But if it turns out to be right, then you'll have the big toe, the big theory of everything, T-O-E, the theory of everything. You'll have a theory which accounts for, you'll have a theory which accounts for everything that, that's, that's real. But you won't have every theory that you need, because you won't, you won't have these, these, you'll have a theory of what everything is at bottom, but you won't have a theory of what things are on the top, the things that, the complex relationships that are capable of evolving and of constituting themselves within uh, a complex material reality. So you, you won't have uh, everything you need. But you embrace, you, you don't, the, the conscient version is the God of the gaps. There's always things that science can't explain. We explain the part that science can't explain. It's exactly counterpart to the God of the gaps in, on, on, in right-wing Christianity. The left-wing, the, the, the Hegelian version says, no, there's not. The, the science, science explains the whole, explains the, the fundamental basic schema of reality itself. But reality is not a, a reductionistic, deterministic, programmable system. That's why, that's what Zizek is saying when he says, the all is the all, but the all is a non-all. That's why he has a notion of parallax gaps. That's why he has a notion, and that's why Malibu talks about a kind of reasonable materialism. Uh, meaning non-programmability, which is her, her Derridian side. All right, now, um, let me move on to what is supposed to be my second point, but I'm, I'm actually going to make it briefer than that. Um, this apocalyptic nihilism that um, we, we just saw in Leotard at the beginning, and that Bra Brassier's book, Brassier's book is a great book. It's beautifully written. It's very powerful. Um, it's a powerful argument for an utterly deterministic, reductionistic, nihilistic version of the universe, in which he says, um, I'm not reading, so I, I have to catch it. He says, a, a trillion, trillion, I'm paraphrasing now, a trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, the universe will be spread out in cold, dark, entropic dissipation. And the forces of dark energy and dark matter will push it into this increasingly rapid acceleration and expansion um, into utter, cold, dark dissipation. And nothing will have happened. Nothing will remain. So not simply solar death, but universal death, everything. Uh, now, I say, well, you know, that's what 
most physicists think right now. That's the dominant theory. There's other theories out there, too. There's theories that there's the great contraction or the great crunch. And then there's a, there's a physicist at, Harvard, at uh, Princeton who thinks that uh, the uni universes are sort of like, like my hands uh, coming closer and closer and closer and they bounce off each other. And when they bounce off each other, they set off big, the, the Big Bang. And the Big, big Bang uh, expands, 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 expands. Then, it's, then it reaches this, this outer point, and then they start coming in again and contracting. And it just, it's like Nietzsche, it's eternal recurrence. It just keeps, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So entropic dissipation is just simply a terminal state in an endless universe. So, but let's suppose that this universe, the, most, most physicists now think the Big Bang is that the law, the second law of thermal equilibrium will set in, the universe will end up in cold entropic de uh, death. What does that mean? For us now, suppose it's true. It's probably true. It's what they, it appears to be true. So the weight of evidence right now is in that direction. Well, that it seems to me doesn't result in in nihilism. It doesn't result in some theory that um, our life makes no sense, has no meaning. It would only make have that implication if you thought that things only have meaning if they're eternal that things are only valuable if they last forever. But the only pe people who think that are, are, are Augustinian uh, 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 Muscle. <laughs> city, city of God Augustinians, right? The, the only people who think that are people who identify eternity with truth. I mean, it's a platonic Christian assumption. I think exactly the opposite is true. I think what makes something valuable is its, tempor its temporality, its, its provisionality, its mortality. Part, part of the power and part of the depth and part of the value of love is that love is incised by death. The great aporia of love, Derrida says, is, do I want the beloved to have the longer life so that I would soon, sooner perish first so that the beloved may have the longer life? Or do I want to spare the beloved the pain of separation, the pain of the survivor? It's irreconcilable, aporia. But that aporia doesn't defeat love. It doesn't undo love, except for St. Augustine, who wants to live forever, and he wants love forever. It defines love. It constitutes love. It's ingredient in love. It's what makes love love. It's what, it's the irreducible constituent of the mortality of love or of anything that we love. So the mortality of things is the condition of their preciousness. Right? So the last thing, the last conclusion you should draw from this cosmological nihilism or apocalyptic nihilism is that the, this little moment off in a remote corner of the universe 
where things are scalloped and notched and landscaped. This, this, this uh, flash in an infinitely dark sky, which is our lives, is nothing. It's not nothing. It's, it's an extraordinary piece of good luck. It's an extraordinary event. It's what in theology we would call a grace. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift of chance. It's a, it's a remarkable uh, uh, revelation, which is the other side of uh, the word apocalypse. So I don't draw the conclusion of nihilism from um, the Big Bang Theory or the fact or solar death or anything else. Now, uh, let me skip to my conclusion. What, what, what I think um, what, what I think lies in the future, our, what, what makes this moment a moment of crisis for us in philosophy and in the humanities generally, is that things really are undergoing something like an apocalyptic change. And you can't, a, 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 a profound transformation is being affected by the, the revolution in information technologies and by the extraordinary uh, explosion of scientific learning on every level, from, from physics to, uh, to, to neuroscience. You can't wave that off with transcendental idealism. You can't transcendentally delimit science and say it deals with appearances in some way or another. You can't say science doesn't think. It's a completely reactionary attitude towards science. Contemporary, and I'm going to read the last couple pages and then I'll stop. Contemporary techno-science has begun to close the difference between science and philosophy and science and religion, between miracles and machines, between heaven and earth, between life and non-life, between the human and the non-human. If the task of philosophy is to think against the unthinkable boundaries of thought, today that limit is being redefined, reimagined, reconceived, not by philosophy, but by speculative physics and contemporary biotechnologies. The philosophers and the theologians, on the other hand, are reacting, retrenching, retreating, in order to protect some of the, the turf they still call their own. Science thinks the very limits or boundaries of our most fundamental categories. Um, Pushing those ancient limits back, questioning to what extent these traditional limits are fixed and immovable, wondering whether and how death itself may be deferred or even in principle eliminated. Challenging everything that philosophy and religion have hitherto presupposed. The great phenomenologies of life, of the living body, of lived experience, of the flesh, the current debate about the distinction between zoe and bios, will gradually be rendered obsolete directly in proportion to the power we require, acquire to relieve life of one biological limit after another, and perhaps in principle, and this is the farthest out, craziest reaches of all, uh, for, for better or for worse, detaching it from its biological basis altogether. The great feminist philosophies will be gradually transformed by the advancing technologies of reproduction, 
which will relieve the bodies of the women who cho so choose of pregnancy and of giving birth, not to mention what would happen to feminism if sexual difference and sexual reproduction were at the outer limits superseded, them, superseded by pushing beyond pushing replication beyond biology altogether. The horizons of natality and of mortality itself are being pushed back, subjected to more and more pressure as questions are raised regularly about the Earth as our permanent home. As relativity theory transformed our notions of space-time and gravity, the bizarre world of quantum theory and string field theory are gradually making the category of matter itself dubious. The next frontier is life. And we are hard at work, wiping away the horizons of the present, which is so what so frightened Heidegger. Natality, mortality, carnality, terrestriality, materiality, hitherto ultimates, the outer limits, the unquestioned necessary horizons of thinking, come into question as contingent limits, surpassable horizons. Perhaps what lies ahead are bodies without flesh, the eerie undead, the common project of both robotic technology and classical resurrection theology, of Cylons and saints. Perhaps everything we mean by body, life, and being in the world will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, as St. Paul said. At a moment when the boundaries between science and philosophy, science and religion, technology and theology, life and techne, simply give out, caving into the pressure being applied to traditional disciplinary boundaries, which is the substance behind the buzzword postmodernism. I do think that's the one serious part of the word postmodernism. We can keep the boundaries, the modernist boundaries that Kant tried to draw are just collapsing. The tutotra. The singularity, the unforeseeable, the impossible, the stock and trade of continental philosophy threatened to turn continental philosophy inside out by exposing it to a future it did not see coming to an event for which it was unprepared. Perhaps the coming life will be no life at all, none that we, we today can recognize. Perhaps the coming God will be no God at all, the coming philosophy no philosophy at all that we can recognize, not as we know it. Then we shall require an entirely new vocabulary of excess. I skipped the part about the vocabulary of excess. Because um, that's what I think the humanities are. We, are the, 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 we do a phenomenology of excess, the phenomenology of excess over programmable, uh, determinable, me measurable, quantifiable, uh, material relationships. We, we deal with the, the excess over that, the, the, uh, um, the, the scallop, the, nollop, the notch, the, the lynch hook. Then we shall require an entirely new vocabulary of excess, one for which we today are unprepared. When life and philosophy as we know it will be transformed, perhaps beyond recognition, when the only God and the only philosophy uh, available will hang by the thread the thread of a perhaps. Perhaps all that will remain of philosophy is um, something unforeseeable, something uh, which is sort of the watchword of deconstruction. It's the preparation for the unforeseeable. That, I think, is uh, where, the, that, I think, is the crisis uh, that faces us today. 
I went on too long. I'm sorry. I apologize, but thank you very much. You're not going to stop at 530. I, I can stick around a little bit longer. I, ha I have to be home by 7. <laughs> I mean 630. Yeah, sure. Let's go. I sort of rushed through it because I spent too much time ad, ad living. I mean, I, I think that's half true. I mean, I think that I think that there are. You sort of have to wait till scientists retire, you know, and then they start waxing philosophical about science. And but if you interrupt them in their lab, they're impatient, you know, and they don't. Uh, they're not always articulate about what you're talking about. But there are there really are quite a lot of people who are quite articulate about uh, the, the mystery and the wonder, which is science. And there are people who are really quite good. Um, who are scientists, who are quite good at capturing the human element. And I'm thinking of somebody like Brian Greene, for example, who is just really, really good at it. I mean, he captures the, 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 mystery, uh, the, the mystery that science is, and he captures the uh, modesty of, of genuine science. I mean, scientists are, are not inclined to say that something is true. They're inclined to say the weight of the evidence at 6.25 this afternoon points in that direction, but two weeks from now, you know, we'll, there's, a, there's still a lot we don't know. So you'll get lots of uh, modesty among scientists, reluctance to claim too much, care, carefulness, and a deep sense of uh, confoundment at the mystery of what they're messing with, what they're approaching. But I, but I know, I think, you're, I think that's true. I just think that science is, is more, we, you and I, I mean, we should be Lebanasians about this. Don't assume responsibility for them, assume responsibility for yourself. You and I have to be um, more uh, appreciative of, of, the, of the mystery which uh, science is. 
which the sciences are unraveling about our bodies and about medicine and about animals and about the cosmos and the, the splendor of uh, that world. So we have to assume responsibility for ourselves. Uh, in fact, I think you probably are, can cut them a break. I think there are probably more scientists out there who are sensitive to these things. And, and some of them even are really quite mystical. I mean, they get this, this Templeton Foundation. You want to you get some very mystical sciences. Listen to these people who, work for, who are, have grants from the, the Templeton Foundation. I mean, they, are, they, they treat science as a kind of religious uh, exercise, the, the mystery of the cosmos. And, I mean, I really do think that what we think about God and what we mean by God is utterly, is about to be utterly transformed. It, I, it started with Hegel. Hegel. Hegel's interpretation of Christianity was a sea change, I think, in the philosophy of religion. And it was quite the opposite of Kant's. So I, I like to use the philosophy of religion as a token. It's sort of like the canary in the mind. You know, and you, you can sort of see what's happening in philosophy. If you look what's happening in philosophy of religion, Kant went in one direction to make room for faith and to stay close to the Lutheran tradition, and Hegel went in a completely different direction, which was radically demythologizing. And um, I, I think that the, a parallel attitude should set in, not simply with God, the, the, the super sensible real, but with science, you know, and we should we should allow science in. Uh, don't practice the God of the God, God argument when it comes to science, uh, but but allow it to allow it to be the other that we always say we're. When Kant talk about the other, they usually mean um, all the others that they're glad to see, you know, all, all the others that they welcome, like like poetry and literature and psychoanalysis and the social sciences, what they usually don't mean is mathematical physics. Um, but, but we're supposed to be welcoming of the other. And they should too. I mean, I'll give you that much. They should too. They should listen to us. But, but, but you know, they don't trust us. They don't trust us. Yes? Hi. Um, this is sort of related. Maybe it's an easy segue. Um, first, Thank you for the, your presentation, and I wholeheartedly agree with a lot of your sentiment that, you, and as you just demonstrated, that philosophy and the humanities should be able to see, you know, the, the wolves at the door, the job market around the corner, and then the, just the implosion of the sun in trillions and trillions of years from now. But I'm just wondering, and you mentioned psychoanalysis briefly as, you know, a sort of a, a microculture or camp in the humanities. And I feel a little bad asking you a question, given that you weren't here last night for good reasons. Um, but given that this conference did bring together, um, you know, and, and would have had more psychoanalytic, you know, campers, has um, Slavoj Zizek been able to come? But there was um, very much conversation about these, what's at stake in, um, in it, what, what happens to the status of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic influence in philosophy if we do decide to champion a sort of um, wedding science, or at least a new embrace of science. Um, I think last night we saw sort of natural and, and a debate that's been going on, obviously, for decades um, between people who consider psychoanalysis to be the enemy of science in a certain way, and people who also don't understand why there has to be that conflict. Um, I'm just curious where, how, how do you, in, in this, uh, presentation of the future, uh, hopefully not the end of the humanities that you mapped out, where do you see psychoanalysis fitting in? 
Um, well, first of all, I, I agree with Malibu that, um, about the, uh, the necessity to integrate any possible science of the mind with neurology. And, um, and, and, and to interpret neurology in a non-deterministic way. So the neurology doesn't have to mean, the, the mind itself admits of plasticity. And this is, this is something that Merleau-Ponty himself recognized. Um, Merleau-Ponty was, I mean, you know, in, in contemporary terms, because Merleau-Ponty was a materialist, but he was not a deterministic materialist. He didn't think there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the argument that they were having in those days about behaviorism between stimulus and response. He thought that the body was this plastic, self-reinventing, uh, organic um, uh, force, um, which which is true, and then she's and and that's what what she means by plasticity, and that's what uh, she's trying to say about brain science. That brain science has to have the same kind of plas. Brain brain science does recognize plasticity. Um, about I didn't hear what she was saying back to him, but I I hope she said the following. Um, my, my, I have one reservation about psychoanalysis, and that's this. I think that the, that the discovery of the unconscious is a revolutionary uh, emancipation and breakthrough, which uh, helps us uh, understand the, the complexity and the um, uh, conf conflictual nature of, of conscious life and the, and the the way in which conscious life is is a, uh, a, a polyphony, a cacophony of, of, of voices, with some undercurrent that we is go with someone beneath it all that is just happening behind our back, and, and I think Nietzsche had a perfect insight into that. I think that Kierkegaard did too. The only reservation I express about all that is that it could somehow or another be sexually decoded. Or that, that it has any kind of coding at all. I mean, what what's, what what um, what seems obvious to me is that it's it is as cacophonous as the conscious level that it's that it's trying to understand. It's it's not codable in terms of sexuality. It's not codable in terms of power. It's not codable in in, in any particular way. It's it's as it's as complex and irreducible. Um, as uh, as conscious life itself, and so um, I, I don't. I, 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 the mistake would, for psychoanalysis would be to think of the psychoanalyst as the, the detective, instead of thinking of it as the companion in a uh, a dark night in which we are uh, all siblings of the same uh, darkness, the same mysteriousness. Um, now I, I I Rachel says she's got a. Um, uh, a recording of it, so I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, want, I want to hear what, what, what she said. What, what, what was she saying? What was her? Um, well, I mean, I don't want to speak for all the complicated issues that were coming up last night, but in response to your response now, um, I think it definitely does come down to the question of whether or not, um, how, I think ultimately one thing that would be good to address is how psychoanalysis came to the humanities in the first place, from being, for lack of a better term, alternative science. Um, how did, you know, what other clinical practice do so many English majors, lit majors, film studies um, majors, 
you know, he's reviewed all these cases. Yeah, because it was just rejected this night. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange that that particular, whatever kind of science you want to call it, ended up getting adopted more wholeheartedly than, in, than the types of science that are just now beginning to be called for in the humanities. Well, it divorced itself from neurology. Um, but in response to your your way of distinguishing between the detective and the sort of the dark knight friend in need and the lifelong companion of and complication of consciousness, um, I think that's actually a really good way to put it in terms of what is this, what's at stake with what, how much we want to keep psychoanalysis in the humanities. Is our job to be detectives or to, to explain things, explain the human, um, to, to be lifelong dark nighters or uh, to think that we have concrete problems that we can solve for other disciplines. Yeah, I think the ultimate power of psychoanalysis is the, is the power of the companion who shares and divides suffering. But I didn't think that there's any code that breaks the spell of suffering. position for a moment uh, and, uh, and ask you what do you think of the notion that, that phenomenology, even in its origin, was all about the overcoming of this division between subjectivity and, uh, and objectivity. Uh, so that what you're suggesting for the future actually is coherent with the, with the depreciation of the direction in which phenomenology needs to go. It might have taken a long time to get there, but this will remain in so many ways problematic in his efforts to achieve that. Maybe we're coming into our own as phenomenologists today. That would be uh, one point. But the other is in, uh, the, re the suggestion that, we're, that we got stuck in a kind of Kantianism that uh, was the reaction to science, because Kant himself uh, was a promoter of the advancement of science. So, but, but that aside, I also think that most of the reaction was about positivism and about uh, the uh, methodology, the scientific method imposing itself on the humanities rather than our resisting science. I think it was this unbelievable uh, co-optation of all the fields of the humanities by a, a kind of positivistic method of science that uh, destroyed, mm -hmm. in a certain sense, the purpose of the point of the humanities. So I wonder how you... No, they're both valid points. Is, is, um, the first point I embrace completely. I mean, when you look at the, um, when you look at the history of phenomenology, the beginning of phenomenology was a re reaction against 19th century subjectivistic psychologism. And um, uh, Husserl, of course, Husserl himself was, began actually in a psychologistic position, and then they got criticized by Frege which, who maintained that you're confusing numbers with counting. And that was, there was an apocalypse. Uh, that really was an apocalypse for, for, for Husserl because he saw, Frege was right. And so it dismantled his own psychologism in the philosophy of arithmetic, and it revealed to him a new world, which, is, which was the world of objective ideality. So that numbers are numbers, number, and numbers are valid. Is, is valid, it holds. The, the, the laws of mathematics hold independent of 
the consciousness that is conscious of them. But unless consciousness is, but, but that, that leaves the task of, for phenomenology of, de, of describing the conscious acts in which objective um, uh, validities, ideal validities hold. So the early, early phenomenology was thought to be a version of Platonism, Platonic realism. It was associated with Meinung. And um, Husserl was sort of, and this is Heidegger's point, Husserl was headed in the right directions in the logical investigations, and, but he got sidetracked in between the logical investigations and the, and the writings of, of the later 20s and 30s. He got sidetracked by neoconscientism. Right? I mean, that's really what, that's really what, that's what Heidegger thinks about Husserl, and it's, I think, true, that when, when Husserl discovered Kant, he, he began giving the, the phenomenology of the logical investigations a transcendental formulation in terms of a transcendental ego, which, of which he had no need. There's no transcendental ego in the logical investigations, and there's no need for one. In, in, in phenomenology, transcendental ego is, a, is an imminent transcendency. It's already constituted. And the pure flow of internal time is the irreducible life stream of, uh, of consciousness. And so phenomenology has a realistic uh, tendency about it. And Heidegger is the one who came in and sort of straightened that out and said that the predecessor figure for phenomenology is not Descartes, which Husserl was maintaining under the influence of Kant. It's Aristotle. And I'm not going to teach you about that. I mean, that's, that I think is uh, the story. And I think the whole history of phenomenology after that is a reaction against the transcendentalism and the consciousness of um, phenomenology. So I, I do think Kant is the villain in the piece, uh, but I don't think phenomenology is villainous. I think phenomenology has um, uh, a more robustly realist dimension. And I think that the contemporary philosopher of scientists who makes the most sense, the two most sensible contemporary philosophers of science are Ian Hacking and Bruno Latour, both of whom um, want to take account of both the realism of science and of the historical construction. Latour's, Latour's point is the more construction, uh, the more reality. So that they're not inversely related to each other, they're directly proportional. That is to say, the more complex the scientific community, the more complex the scientific language, uh, the more co complex the institutional apparatus that helps us constitute scientific theories, the more reality we get. You go to the CERN lab, lab outside of uh, uh, Geneva, you have an extraordinarily complex political and intellectual structure with a vast community of scientists who are going farther in the direction of reality than any single scientist operating by himself. Second point is, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's true, I, I agree. There was a positivist invasion of the United States um, uh, by the, by the expatriate logical positivists who wanted to take over the whole farm and the whole store. And so it set out, it set out what we called years ago the culture wars. Um, the, the two cultures, E.B. Uh, e. B. White's famous book about the two cultures. And then they've been sort of feuding, warring ever since. I'm, I'm not sing, I, I, I'm not come here to blame kind of philosophy for causing all our troubles or, or, or the humanities in general. But what I am saying is that we, 
we need to move on and, and start thinking about the world in more complicated ways than we've, we've been thinking. But I, I take both your points. I, I consider both. Uh, I agree with both those things. That's true. This is Donovan Schaefer from Syracuse University, who is a postdoc at Haverford. Um, so I was thinking, this project of yours, thinking through the future of continental philosophy, is in a certain sense a reaction to this question of why are there no philosophers on TV? And I want to be on TV. And you're seeing, you're seeing like Carl Sagan or like Neil deGrasse Tyson on TV, and you're thinking, these guys, they just, they have the goods. Like, I, I, I can't beat this. I can't, I can't get ahead of these guys. And I, I thought it was interesting how you like you caged it in terms of an affect, right? You said physics now has a sort of monopoly on producing wonder. Wonder is sort of the brand of physics right now. So my question is, do you think that philosophy needs to give up on the possibility of provoking wonder, or does philosophy have some other affective orientation that it can give? Like, what what is the product? I don't want to give up on the affect of wonder. What I'm saying is that they've, I think that, I think contemporary speculative uh, cosmology has stolen philosophy's wonder. And that's where the wonder is. Now, I don't want to give up on that affect. I don't want to give up on affectivity. I don't want to give up on the passion uh, for truth, the passion for Sophia. Um, I, I want it to be, erotic and affective all the way to the core, but I want to recognize, as scientists themselves do, that some interesting people who talk about science, not all of them, uh, that it's an heiress for um, the mystery of things, the, the wonder of things, the splendor of things. Now, I, I just think philosophers like, one of, I'm looking for the various ways in which philosophers pat themselves on the back and congratulate themselves for not being scientists. And one of them is that they say that, Scientists deal with deals. Science deals with problems. We deal with wonder, and I say false, not true. Scientists deal with wonder too. As a matter of fact, they're getting all the headlines when it comes to wonder. And yes, I would like to be on television. <laughs> okay, I, I got to go home and have dinner. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.